Well, good morning. Oh, we know each other better than that. Come on. I've got three kids. We get greeted really loudly in the morning. Good morning. That's good. That's good. My name is Justin. Uh, I am the family minister here at the church. And uh, this morning, I get the privilege of continuing our series through generosity. Somebody asked uh, after first service. Um, I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or not, but where's Randy? <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> I was like, ouch. Um, no, uh, Randy is with our mission teams in uh, Haiti. Uh, and so please continue to pray for them as they are down there ministering to Pastor Isen uh, and his team and being ministered to to as well. Um, but this morning, I get the topic that I believe drives the rest of our generosity topics. You see, for the last four weeks, we've been walking through generosity, generosity of grace, of power. In the last two weeks, we spent on generosity of wealth. And this week, we are going to be talking about generosity of our heart. And when I think of generosity of heart. When I think of somebody that has a heart of generosity, it makes me think back to second grade. Second, third, and fourth grade, I had the same Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Peggy Morley. And Peggy, she was faithful. I don't, I'm sure there was times when she was sick or on vacation, but I don't remember her ever being gone. She was always there on Sunday mornings, and she was not a flashy Sunday school teacher. We didn't have fancy things like crafts, or videos. We had the, uh, the flannel graph where it always looked like Jesus was hovering. And I was like, that's a cool feature. That's neat. I didn't know he could, I mean, I knew he could walk on water, but like the hover, that's cool. We had like the paper timeline that ran of scripture throughout the room. And Mrs. Morley would sit down every week and she would open the scriptures and we would talk about the Bible. When I think of a generous Heart, I think of Mrs. Morley, who dedicated so much time to weird second, third, and fourth graders. I also think of our next Sunday school teacher, because after three years with us, she had to retire or something. We got a new guy, and he reminds me of Bear St. Pierre. If you don't know Bear, you might meet him on the way out. He's, he's going to be running our Cross Trail Outfitters booth out there, and you'd be uh, a, gooder, uh, a gooder person. Whoa. Uh, that's my resignation, I guess. That's good. Uh, you will be a better person to know Eric St. Pierre. But this guy, my new Sunday school teacher, was more of a mountain than a person. Uh, he was big. He had, he had fingers that looked more like bananas. Um, and when you shook his hand, it was more like, ow, oh, not a hello. Um, but his name was Mr. Brad Berg. Now, Brad was somebody that, that loved us. He loved just the weird fourth, fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade boys. And so we gathered us together as a small group and we walked through scripture together. Again, nothing fancy, nothing flashy. But my first camping trip was with Mr. Berg in his backyard with our small group of guys. We all got together, set up camp and everything. And it was just a really fun time that I will always remember. When I think of a generous heart, I think of Brad Berg. And I know those names don't mean anything to you, but maybe you're starting to calculate in your mind the names that mean something to you. The names that mean you're here. The names that had a part in your story, I think of two other guys named Dave Kiefer and Dave Aarons. Now, Dave Aarons was my youth pastor. And to this day, I would still call him my youth pastor. He's somebody that is continuing to mentor me over and over and over again. Somebody that anytime we, get, we go home to Rockford... I sit down for lunch with him, and we just talk about life. We talk about marriage. We talk about ministry. 
And Dave Kiefer is somebody else that kind of entered into my life in the middle of college. See, him and Dave Ahrens became best friends, and so naturally I became a best friend with this other Dave. And I didn't realize how special our relationship was going to be until when we had our first child. She was in the intensive care unit for 10 days after, after, the, uh, after the birth. And um, as new parents, we were really scared, had no idea what was going to happen. And both Daves got into a car and drove down two hours to see us for 20 minutes. They spent time with us. They prayed with us. They prayed over Lucy. And then they got in their car and took the two-hour trip back. They spent four hours in the car to spend 20 minutes pouring into our heart. When I think of a generous heart, those are the people that come to mind. Now, before we get any further, I want to make sure that we define generosity, that we have a good, solid, easy, because I need it to be easy, easy definition of generosity. And so here is the way uh, we would describe generosity. Generosity is joyfully giving something away. Notice it's not giving joyfully, because we want to be joyfully giving. There's a difference if you didn't know that. Joyfully giving something away. When we talk about having a generosity of the heart, we are talking about joyfully surrendering our heart. This morning, we're going to be looking at three truths of a surrendered heart. Now, when we talk about heart, we're talking about our operating system. We talk about the why of, what we, of, of our what. What rules your heart will rule your life. Words come from the heart. Actions come from the heart. When we give, it comes from the heart. When love flourishes, it comes from the heart. When we talk about a surrendered heart, we are talking about a heart that beats the same beat as Christ. And that's what I want us to look for in our scripture this morning. If you have your scriptures, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning. If you didn't bring them, they'll be up here on the screen or there's a Bible in front of you. Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to set up camp. And I want us to be looking for either the presence of or the lack of surrendered hearts. Luke chapter 9, starting at the end in verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. This is what our scriptures say. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The first truth I want to point out here is that a surrendered heart surrenders what is comfortable for what is necessary. A surrendered heart surrenders what is comfortable for what is necessary. Let's go back to, our, to the first couple of verses here, 57 and 58. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't reply to this man's statement. He replies to the path which he is trying to dedicate himself to. You see, the, this journey with Jesus is not a life of extravagant wealth. It's a life of extravagant service, which means our comfortable standards will have to diminish. Following Jesus literally means going where Jesus goes. When we think of it this way, that poetic statement of, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, starts to have some huge implications for us. Jesus is essentially asking this man, what are you willing to surrender? What are you willing to give up? See, if you decide to follow me, you decide to surrender everything. I remember being a kid. My dad's been a worship pastor for 45 years. I grew up with one of these in my house. It wasn't nearly as nice as this piano, but we had a grand piano in our house. My mom would play. My dad would sing. And so hymns were always constantly in our home, always constantly something that we sang at church. And this old hymn struck me this week as I'm reading through these scriptures. And it's this old song, I Surrender All. You guys remember this song? And I don't know why as a kid that I liked this slow song about surrendering. But the first verse goes something like this. It goes, all to Jesus. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> we leave that to the musicians. All to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Now, I enjoyed singing this song as a child because I was like, oh, surrendering to Jesus sounds easy. All I have is G.I. Joe's and a lunchbox. I can give that to Jesus. That's easy. But as I've become more of an adult, you weren't supposed to laugh at that part. <laughs> As I've become more of an adult with more responsibilities as an adult, these words start to mean different things to me. See, I, I see my general surrender as a child turning into more specific surrenderings as an adult. I start to calculate in my mind what it is I am really giving up. And I'd like to say that the lyric on my heart is still I surrender all, but at best, most days it's I surrender some. You see, there is a fear in surrendering what makes us comfortable. And I would define comfort as being warm, fed, and safe. It means I got, I got a roof over my head, I've got food on the table, and I don't have any immediate fears that are attacking me in the moment. Being warm, fed, and safe. But the irony is, is that without ever being cold, without ever being hungry, and without ever having fear, I would never know what it is to be comforted. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Did you notice that my definition of comfort is found in things that disappear? 
When my definition of comfort is only warm, fed, and safe, my comfort doesn't sit within the hands of Jesus, but it sits in the hands of my limited self. And if this is the only comfort that I know, if this is the only comfort that I resonate with, then when I see somebody in need, this is also the only comfort I can offer. But when I find comfort in Jesus... When I find comfort in the Savior who came to save the world, then I can offer that comfort. A comfort that can only be found in a consistent surrender. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, are we willing to surrender what is comfortable for what is necessary? The second truth I want to talk about this morning that I believe is sitting right in the middle of our scripture is this, a surrendered heart surrenders our hesitation for Christ's destination. A surrendered heart surrenders our hesitation for Christ's destination. Luke 9, 59 and 60, he says this, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here Jesus approaches a man and simply says, follow me. The man replies with a response that we would deem as well as he does as very noble. It's a very noble request to Jesus. We see it through the eyes of ourselves and we see, oh yes, this is a noble response to Jesus. He says, let me first go and bury my father. You see, the process of burial looked like this. It, it went through two stages. The first stage is when, when, when the father passes away, the family is led by the oldest son to put the body in a casket, move the casket into a tomb where they would leave it for one year so that the body could decompose. And then after that one year, they would then go in, they would collect the bones of their loved ones and keep them until all of the family members had passed away, and then they would all be buried together. Most scholars believe that, that this man is not asking Jesus for a couple of days. He's asking Jesus for this year. He's saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but this just isn't good timing. Either way, this man thought this to be a noble excuse, but Jesus replies with a statement that would have carried some shock factor to it. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And this seems a little insensitive. If we're asking questions, this seems a little insensitive of Jesus. However, Jesus wants and demands a higher commitment in our lives than anything else. But I think for whatever reason, there's a sense in which we can relate with this excuse. It's not that this man isn't willing to follow Jesus. He's, it's just not good timing. Jesus, this is just not going to fit into my schedule. And I said in my Friday email, if you didn't read it, that's your fault. Because I warned you we're going to get real personal this morning. So if your toes are stepped on, you're welcome. Um, you see, this is simply put a half-hearted, surrender-some kind of commitment to Jesus. And a lot of us seem to be okay with a half-hearted, surrender-some kind of commitment to Christ. Because we have every intention at some point in our lives to jump all in and follow Jesus wherever he goes. But it just doesn't fit into our schedule. 
This is what I like. It's what I like to call being a contingent servant. Is where we lay out some foundational work for ourselves to do before we can actually surrender our all to Jesus. This man says, first let me go and bury my father. But we might say something like, first let me go and get my life right. Let me get my act cleaned up before, before I start serving Jesus in all these different ways. Let me get my sins in order because how terrible would it be for me to show the world who I really am? Let me gain more knowledge because I don't want to start a conversation that I can't come out winning. Let me become more confident in myself. Maybe we might say, first Jesus, let me take some time for me. See, our hesitation fuels Satan's determination. Our hesitation will always fuel Satan's determination. What we see as a pause in our spiritual lives, what we see as a pause in our servanthood towards Christ, what we see as a pause in a surrendered heart, Satan sees as an opportunity. An opportunity to pull us further away from Christ's redemptive work. Matthew chapter 4, we won't read it. I just want to give you a synopsis of it. Here Jesus is calling his first disciples. There's a couple of things I want to point out here, but first let me tell you the story. Jesus is calling his first disciples. He goes out to the shore. He sees some men working hard in a boat. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it says in Scripture... At once, they left their nets, and they followed him. Jesus then approaches two others who are also brothers, James and John. They're sons of this guy named Zebedee, which I think we should bring that name back. No amen for that? Come on, that's, that's good. It's a good name. Biblical. These two sons of Zebedee are in the boat with their father. Jesus calls to them. We don't even know what Jesus says, but he calls to them, and, they, and the scriptures say that immediately... They get out of the boat, they leave their father, and they follow. The two things I want us to know is that the first one is that there is no hesitation from either of these sets of brothers. They don't stand in the boat and go, Jesus, let me hear your mission statement or your goals. Before we follow, we got to know who we're following. They don't ask Jesus, Jesus, could you tell us where we're going and, and maybe how we're going to get there? They don't, they don't ask Jesus that. They don't tell Jesus, let us finish up for the day and then we'll be with you. They don't, they don't finish what they are doing. They don't hesitate at all. They don't turn around and ask their father. They just go. There is no hesitation. Jesus says to follow him and at once and immediately they choose Jesus. The second thing to point out here is that Jesus doesn't ask them for their resume. Jesus does not ask them for their qualifications. He does not ask them to admit their greatest sins. He does not ask them to get their lives in order. He does not ask them to pray about it. Here's a side note. If Jesus calls you to do something, you don't have to pray about it. He asks them to follow, and they do. Jesus isn't concerned with their knowledge, their social standing, their current responsibilities, or their leadership experience. 
Because what Jesus calls them to is what he will equip them for. And that is the same thing that is true for us. What Jesus calls you to is what he will equip you for. But I think too often we look to disqualify ourselves from serving before we see that Jesus is equipping us to actually serve. We look at an opportunity to serve and we see our potential dangers. Oh, I won't be any good at that. There's people that are much better than me at that. We see our potential dangers and Jesus just sees our potential. So the question here is, are we willing to surrender our hesitation for Jesus' destination? Are we willing to surrender our timing for his will? Are we willing to surrender our limits and serve through a limitless Savior? The third truth is this. A surrendered heart never looks back. Let's go back to our scripture, verses 61 and 62. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You see, here Jesus is approached by another individual who wants to surrender to Jesus, but he wants to surrender to other things as well. Two words ruin this man's vow to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I will follow you, but first. See, he wants to devote himself to Jesus, but not all of himself. He wants to give his time to Jesus and to other things as well. He wants to serve two masters, or maybe three, or maybe four. His dedication is spread too thin as something else has his attention, his focus, and his heart. He's willing to follow Jesus, but it's not an exclusive relationship. And Jesus doesn't want followers who, who, have this, who have this divided affection or split allegiance. Jesus responds with an analogy that, that most people listening that day would have understood about plowing a field. You see, you cannot look back and be surrendered to what is ahead. The biggest threat to a surrendered heart is the word tomorrow. We might say tomorrow a lot. Tomorrow I'll start eating better. Tomorrow I'll start exercising. Tomorrow I'll be in the scriptures every day. Tomorrow I'll start serving. Tomorrow I'll pick up coffee for my coworkers and just bless them. Tomorrow I'll be a good, I'll be a good dad. Tomorrow I'll be a good husband. Tomorrow I'll be a good employee. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. My friend in high school had a t-shirt that said, Procrastinators Unite. Tomorrow. The biggest threat to a surrendered heart is the word tomorrow. The question is, is how long have we been telling Jesus tomorrow? The reality is is that tomorrow eventually becomes never. This is the only time in history that we get to fight for God. We are the only entity on the planet that is given the responsibility of communicating the gospel to one another. Tomorrow will always become another tomorrow. Looking back will always make us take our eyes off of Jesus. You see, a surrendered heart never looks back. And so my question here is, are we willing to surrender our heart, our everything, 
For Jesus is heart, and Jesus is everything. Wrapping up our scripture in Luke 10, 1 through 2, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The biggest question, as we've asked several this morning, the biggest question is this. The biggest question is not, are you going to follow Jesus? That's been a question that's been asked through churches throughout centuries is, are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus? No, that's not the biggest question. The biggest question is not, are you going to follow Jesus? But where are you going to follow Jesus? See, a surrendered heart will always lead us to a harvest that is ready. A surrendered heart will always equip us. A surrendered heart will always cause action, not hesitation. If we are not seeing that there is a need for Christ where we work, then we need to pray for our hearts. If we are not seeing the needs of our neighbors, then we are not looking through the lens of a surrendered heart. If we are not approaching the needs that we do see, then we lack a surrendered heart. If we are ignoring the needs in our own building of our kids, of our students, and of each other, then we have surrendered to the wrong things. One of the things I like most about uh, our senior pastor, Randy, and the way he preaches is he always has this big idea. So it's like, okay, What's all this boil down to? Like, what's this scripture really get down to? What are the nuts and bolts of this scripture saying to me? And it's this right up here. This is our big idea for the morning. The cost of following Jesus is joyfully surrendering our heart to his heart. The cost of following Jesus is joyfully surrendering our heart to his heart. You see, if we are joyfully giving away what makes us comfortable, if we are joyfully giving away our hesitation, if we are joyfully surrendering our hearts to his heart, then silence through our words or through our actions is not an option. We cannot be witnesses with our mouth closed. We cannot be on mission without steps forward. We cannot have a surrendered heart and say the words, but first... We cannot receive everything that Jesus has for us until we let go of everything that currently occupies our hearts. Our world needs the message of Christ through the words of his followers. Lies are only louder than truth when we remain silent. It's time that the church gets just as loud and bold and courageous as everybody else. You see, I think most of the time we keep quiet We keep quiet about our faith, and we call it being respectful to others and their beliefs. Like I said, we're going to get hurt this morning. Most of the time, we call it being respectful towards others and their beliefs. I think sometimes we can even call our quietness, we can call it being tolerant of others. I think sometimes the words that come out of my mouth, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I am so, so glad that Jesus did not lead that way. Can you imagine? Jesus comes, dies on the cross, is raised from the grave, and nobody knows. Jesus comes to save your neighbors, and they don't have any idea. Jesus comes to take away the sins and the struggles, the habits and the hurts of a hurting world, and nobody will talk about it. 
We cannot spend our lives trying to manage the opinions of others. That's exhausting. It's time that we speak grace louder. It's time that we speak truth louder. It's time that we serve not just in these walls, but outside of these walls. It's time to joyfully surrender our hearts to his. There are 208,861 people that live in Champaign County, and every single one of them needs to know that Jesus loves them and that Jesus has a plan for their lives because that's life-changing. A couple weeks ago, um, I served with our middle school kids on Wednesday nights. If you've got a fourth through sixth grader that's not here on Wednesday nights, they are missing out on a big pile of sweat, dodgeball, and gospel. It's just a beautiful combination. We hose the room down every week. We just turn on the sprinklers down there, and it just takes care of it. It's nice. Some of our volunteers know what we're talking about. But there have been some really amazing things happening down there on Wednesday nights with our fourth through sixth graders. A few weeks ago, we talked about laying our burdens down in front of the cross. And I watched as child after child after adult after adult came up with a note card written down with something that burdens their heart and they lay it at the feet of Jesus. And that week, I shared with them a burden that has been on my heart. It's not something we made real public. My mom was fighting breast cancer again. This is the second time it's happened. 25 years ago it happened when I was eight and made it through that time. And then now we found out again that my mom was going to be having surgery that coming Friday. And so I shared with the kids, I said, guys, I'm going to be really real with you right now. I need some prayer. My mom needs some prayer. Our family, the doctors, we all need prayer. We didn't know how bad it was. We didn't really know what was going to happen. She was just having some surgery. And so I pleaded with them to pray for me and my mom. And this last Wednesday, the Wednesday after the surgery, I had a girl named Eliana. She's a fourth grader. She came up to me and she said, Mr. Justin, can we talk? I was a little scared. Um, I said, sure, we can talk. So we, we, we went to the side of the room and and she said, uh, she said, Mr. Justin, I've been praying for your mom. I said, thank you. She's like, how did the surgery go? One, I was just so impressed that she remembered enough to ask me again the following week. I said, surgery went great. They got it all, and she's going to have to go through some chemotherapy, but she's going to make a full recovery. She's like, that's such great news. She's like, I've been praying for her every day. I've been praying for her doctors. I've been praying for your family. And I was floored, but the God, God wasn't done yet because she looks at me and she says, so I started talking with my parents and I have, uh, <laughs> I have Christmas money left over and I know medical bills can be really expensive. I'd like to give that money to your parents. I'm not speechless most of the time. I could talk to a wall. But in that moment, I knew I wasn't talking to just the fourth grader. I was talking to a fourth grader who had a surrendered heart to a savior. I assured her that mom and dad's insurance was covering all of it, and that they wouldn't have to pay anything out of their pocket, and I wanted, I wanted her to be able to share that money with somebody else that was in need. 
But I thanked her for her compassion, for her love, for her grace. Because this is what generosity looks like. This is what a generous heart looks like. You see, the irony of that whole thing is I was going down that night to teach them the message of Jesus, and she was coming to church to be the message of Jesus to me. This is what generosity looks like. This is what it sounds like. This is what it feels like. So again, the question is not, are you going to follow Jesus? But where are you going to follow Jesus? Let's pray.